Welcome to this Frequency Matters podcast. I'm Pat Hindle, and today we're going to discuss the U.S. National Science Foundation's announcement of a new investment of over $37 million aimed at the development of intelligent, resilient, and reliable next-generation or next-gen networks. And the investment is called RINGS, which is short for Resilient and Intelligent Next-Generation Systems. And it's a public-private partnership that focuses on accelerating research to increase the competitiveness of the U.S. in the next generation networking and computing technologies and also ensure security and resilience of the infrastructure. So here to discuss that with me is Ali Hyderala. He is Senior Scientist in Advanced Technology Group at Ericsson, and they are a key partner in this work. Welcome, Ali. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us about the National Science Foundation partnership and program that we're talking about here? Yeah, so this has been going on for a couple of years. We at Ericsson had been having discussions with NSF and also other kind of core companies from the telecom uh, segment were also having their own conversations with NSF. And we were having our own conversations among the companies and, and it slowly morphed into kind of more serious discussion synchronized among three or four companies. And we, you know, being being from telecom, we had somewhat similar uh, priorities to what, you know, what we wanted to, to energize in academia and so on. And we also seem to be on the same page in terms of the urgency to, to get the thing going. So eventually we, you know, eventually it became an actual uh, plan for a so-called uh, public-private partnership where the, you know, the private sector companies uh, contribute some money and NSF matches it, and then you, you get a you know big enough pool to 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 kind of move the needle, if you will. Uh, but what happened along the way is as we were shaping it, sort of other companies wanted in, which which was both kind of uh, messy because they went they wanted to come in and shape the, the call for proposals their way, which is very natural. Uh, but at the same time, it became much bigger, and we also had the Department of Defense uh, coming in and NIST, which is a big uh, government agency, come in. And in the end, all together, it became a $40 million program, which, which is pretty impressive. I mean, so here we're not talking about, you know, building large infrastructure and so on. But that would cost a lot more. But if you divide it up among projects that are doing more of the fundamental pieces, then, then it could carry a long way. So, so eventually, of course, 37 academic uh, projects were selected and each will get $1 million more or less and, uh, and it will last over three years. So it's quite good. Yeah, there was a good list of high quality universities and other companies involved. So it'd be interesting to see what comes out of it. So can you tell us what 6G related efforts is Ericsson involved in and what is ramping up in the US? So, so Ericsson, of course, uh, you, know, you know, we've worked on all the Gs uh, for many, many years. And you know there are these regional uh, efforts that pop up all over the world. Uh, in Europe, uh, you know, Ericsson is headquartered in, in Stockholm, Sweden. So in Europe, we're involved in the so-called HexaX project, and there used to be projects before it. I mean, in the US, of course, there has always been uh, funding for wireless and telecom-related research, but it wasn't labeled, say, 5G 10 years ago or so. That doesn't mean there wasn't there wasn't a lot of interesting research going on, uh, but we seem to kind of among among the companies that started this discussion, we seem to be of of very similar 
opinions that like, why don't we just label it 6G or next G, right? I think with not, not only it will give it more momentum and more kind of make it more recognizable, but at the same time, it, it sort of gives you the, the time scale of when the important stuff needs to be done. So I think, uh, so of course we ended up with NSF rings, but going back to what efforts we're involved in, we're involved, for example, in another big NSF project called Power, P-A-W-R, which is uh, platforms for uh, something, wireless research. Uh, and that, that is to build infrastructure so that uh, research projects can happen over them. And that is ongoing, it's been ongoing for several years and it or some follow-up for it will continue. We also have individual university collaborations like with Stanford University, with Berkeley, uh, with NYU. Uh, we I think we have one coming up with the UT Austin. Uh, we have one with Rutgers and, and so on. So th now those are individual, you know, one-to-one -one, uh, relationships, but they're also, you know, given that we're Ericsson, they always are around uh, wireless topics uh, and things that, you know, would end up in 6G in this case. So does Ericsson feel NSF rings is the cornerstone of these efforts and why? So uh, my biased opinion is yes, given that I'm, I individually was very involved from day one in, in this whole setup. But I mean, we, we feel at Ericsson that, you know, we did not want to invent our own way of creating a new partnership. And we knew that uh, NSF uh, had the template for it. I mean, there have been uh, such partnerships before and and we quickly i mean we were kind of talking to various agencies and our competitors and friends and so on like what is the right setup and it quickly became clear to me at least that that you know the nsf has has the scheme academics are used to the nsf ways of working so that's the other side of it and you you want the academics to engage so they they you know nsf is always on the table for them uh, so we quickly went that way. I mean, it, it doesn't make it simple, but at least we started from a very solid template. I mean, there were still lawyers involved in all the things you can imagine because each company wanted to change one word into the agreement zone. But eventually, when all was said and done, uh, it, it, it's a very good, solid setup. So why do we need to provide a long enough runway for research to mature into 6G? Okay, so that, that's, that, that's a very important point. I mean, uh, you know, telecom uh, networks exist and, and they, you don't just like scrape them off and start a new one, even when you go from say 5G to 6G or 4G to 5G, it's like this continuous evolution. Even though when you, when you have a new G, if you will, it is a major change. Nevertheless, it's a very big complicated system and let's say one university professor or student or something comes up with a very brilliant new technique that is very suitable uh, for to eventually become part of 6G. It still has to interwork with a whole bunch of things. And it also has to make a difference to the system, right? So this is, I think, this is where this maturing uh, that many people underestimate needs to take place. So, so it is one thing to say, okay, look, this is very good. It's, it is, let's say we all acknowledge that something uh, was invented or developed that is better than what was there before. Nevertheless, it takes a huge effort to uh, get it 
integrated into a system for people to understand what happens, what's the good news, what's the bad news. They have to test it, they have to simulate it. Eventually they have to build it, all the kinds of stuff. It has to cost something reasonable in the end and be, we have to be able to manufacture it. All these things don't just happen instantly. So you, you kind of have this long process, takes a lot of patience uh, and there's many ideas and they have to kind of go through this funnel and work their way in. And sure enough, you end up you end up with a new system. But that's the kind of this kind of runway idea is because you need all this stuff to happen, and you cannot simply decide from day one. I like this technique, so we're done, right? It, it just doesn't work that way. Well, you mentioned it was a complicated process. So why is Ericsson so ambitious to engage with academia, industry, and government to energize research towards six G in the U.S.? In general, we we I mean, having done it before. We think, you know, there's this natural evolution where, you know, at, at the beginning, most of the research has to come from academia. They have the ones to the, the furthest into the future, and they have a feel for, you know, what is new, what hasn't been done before, what is exciting, etc. So they have to do their part. You know, we at Ericsson and our competitors, you know, we have our own uh, research organization, which kind of work on a somewhat shorter scale than, than the most advanced academic stuff. But we also have the benefit that we have a system view that we try to understand how something exciting can be built into a system and so on. So we kind of come behind them in a way and absorb all kinds of neat ideas that come from academia. And we collaborate with academia and whatnot. And we hire the, you know, the bright PhD students from academia. So that, that has to happen. And then you have this uh, process of standardization. Uh, so in our business, there's an organization called 3GPP, uh, where you know 3G, 4G, 5G, and and we think 6G will will come in, right? So so and that that it has its own ways of working, and you know ideas have to come in, they have to be studied, then some of them make it, and they will then they will do very complicated, detailed investigation that would eventually produce a standard, right? So that, uh, in, it's a lot of work, but it looks slow, right? Uh, uh, eventually the standard comes out. So now we're talking about something to happen. So to have some kind of first standard for 6G around 2028 or so, you know, plus or minus one year, and then to have real deployments around 2030 plus or minus one year, you have to be doing this the work now. So in a couple of years, you're involved in stand in very early standards and it keeps going and going and going and then you get a standard, right? And then, th then, then that would be only one release of the standard and there'll be three, four, five of them over the lifetime of that 6G, right? Now, as far as the US is concerned, kind of let's say if we go back 10 years or, or so, the US was not, I mean, the US in terms of academia was not very engaged in the development of 5G. My experiences with the US and, and, and Europe. So I think in Europe, we were very involved in the precursor research projects to this, the current HEXA Act. So, so that, and that kind of fed eventually into 5G. Whereas in the US, there was not this kind of coordinated activity. So with 6G, hopefully like this NSF rings and things of that nature will, will be coordinated towards that. The US is the home of software, it is the home of the, you know, of the cloud, it is the home of uh, semiconductors. So there are a lot of amazing strengths in, in US industry and, and, and usually you see the same things in academia, right? 
So, so it's very important for us at, as Ericsson to build on those strengths in addition to our traditional strength in, in, in strict telecom. So I think this is, so it's very important for us that, that the US research and technology community is energized or 6G. So I think we, we have on, on the industry side, we have this other big uh, organization uh, under ATIS. So ATIS represents the interest of North American telecom industry, including operators and vendors and whatnot. So under that, there's something called the Next Generation Alliance, NGA, uh, which we have been uh, setting up for the past year or so, and now it's up and running and so on. And it has produced its first outcome, which talks about so-called ambitious goals for 6G. But like those are the general themes that the Alliance as a whole, which has 50, 60 members, is thinks, okay, this is the direction that we want to go into. And we also have different working groups working on, on different aspects like technology or society or green, low energy, et cetera. And all these things will, will work their way and produce, uh, for example, white papers kind of outlining what, what they think is important. And, and that NGA, one of its main reasons for existence is that it should be interacting with the US government and the US government agencies, like you know, we mentioned NSF multiple times already, but there's also DARPA, there's uh, Department of Energy, there's NIST, there's all kinds of places in the US government that are very technically advanced and are very interested in, in kind of participating in this process. So we hope that NGA will be another place which will interact with the US government and get more funding uh, both for, for academia and, and possibly for industry. So can you highlight some of the ideas that you think might be available in 6G that people are thinking about? Because I heard a lot about, you know, for using higher frequencies, we can integrate sensing yeah. with the communications. Yeah. So, so there's always, you know, they're not making more spectrum and we never have enough spectrum. So, so I think one of the big things that happened with 5G as we sort of broke through the, uh, the, the, the spectrum limitation. So, so all, the, all the previous generations of cellular were kind of operating in spectrum roughly between say, you know, seven, 800 uh, megahertz up to three gigahertz. So everything that happened was there, right? So even 4G, was there. And different countries have different uh, chunks of spectrum uh, that is available. No, nevertheless, the image is similar. Now with 5G, one of the things that was baked in from the start is, is this so-called so flexible numerology, which sounds like it's about, uh, you know, finding your future or something. But, but it, it, what it really does is like the same basic physical layer uh, that interacts with the actual over the air channel uh, can be kind of, it has knobs and you can adjust it for different frequency bands. But what that allowed us to do is both operate at the, you know, below three gigahertz and then somewhat in the so-called, now, now they refer to it as mid band, which is about between three and five, six gigahertz. We're starting to climb in there like the C band where Verizon, AT&T, uh, are starting to deploy. And also in the so-called millimeter wave, 
which is not really millimeter wave, but it's close. close yeah. And it starts in the 20 something gigahertz. So there's a big band at 28 gigahertz. There's another band at 39 uh, gigahertz or 37 gigahertz. And those are kind of happening. And so that is in 5G. Now, in six, now the, of course, the spectrum is full of all kinds of uh, both commercial usage and non-commercial usage. And we're not talking mobile, we're talking satellites, we're talking uh, radar, uh, weather radar, all kinds of things, uh, some federal systems, uh, you know. But so the next kind of promising, somewhat uh, open band is around 100 gigahertz. And so it's way out there. And now, so they're calling it terahertz. And again, it's not quite terahertz. So the, what, I mean, the good news was going to higher frequencies as you get more bandwidth. Great, more bandwidth, we can pump more mits, et cetera. It's all good. The relatively bad news is the propagation is more challenging at higher frequencies. So if you, if you think of the, the, the wavelength, which is one over the frequency, you know, if, if uh, at one gigahertz, you can go through a, a wall at 100 uh, gigahertz, now this, that the, the thickness of the wall is many wavelengths so that the signal will really kind of struggle to get through. So it will affect the way you deploy your, your systems. You, have, you need basically smaller cells in order to operate at such high frequencies. But, but you know, still, I mean, if any spectrum that's given to us will find a way to use it. I think in, in the current 5G, there, there has been an explosion in the, in the use of uh, multi-antenna transmitters and receivers, which allows you to do, among other things, beamforming. So you kind of can point the signal like a flashlight uh, to the user, right? So that really helps both boost capacity and boost bit rates. And, and this will kind of go further and further towards 6G. So you'll have more of it. But there's also kind of like if you you know Ericsson has published this white paper last year about 6G, and I think they, we just uh, published a refresh of it you know weeks ago. I mean you you mentioned sensing, so there is this idea that uh, communication and sensing will kind of merge together. So so the same network, if you will, uh, that is used for communicating uh, back and forth can also be used to sense the environment, right? And we, we've, we've actually done some experiments a few years ago where with our backhaul network, right? Which is not even a, a mobile, it's not mobile, it's not access, it's the backhaul network. It operates in, in microwave and millimeter wave. And you could have a very good picture of the microclimate because, you know, the climate affects the quality of the link for, for backhaul. So you, if you kind of do uh, AI on, on the information and kind of munge it all together. Uh, you can actually tell where, you know, where there's fog, where there's rain, where it's sunny, where et cetera. Uh, so you can imagine, I mean, that is a very early example of it, but you can imagine, you know, using things for, for detection of objects, for uh, positioning, which we, I mean, we already have some positioning, but you can go further and further uh, for, uh, one thing I would like to see uh, given my age group, is that uh, there'd be use of sensing in order to help people uh, kind of uh, augment their eyesight, their hearing, the, their ability to uh, uh, move around, their mobility, and so on. I mean, you can imagine if, if the network was supporting you so that you know if there's obstacles in your way, if, some, you know, if somebody has poor eyesight, uh, all kinds of things could be 
sort of derived uh, of the network's main job, which is to communicate, but also do all kinds of sensing. I mean, we, we kind of see it in 5G, but I think it will kind of really happen in 6G. There's the notion of, of uh, having computation at the edge of the network, right? So, I mean, in a traditional network, you know, the network does only does computations for its own purpose, right? Just to run itself. But then if you want something done, you go all the way to a server somewhere on the internet, if you will, and do, do whatever computation and brings it back, right? I mean, you already see that people are doing AR and VR are, are seeing the benefit that if the computation happens really far uh, at the edge of the network, say at the base station, uh, then the delay in getting the information in and out would be much shorter. And then these devices don't have to be these big, ugly things, right? So that you can, you can rely on some uh, computation that's not far from you and doesn't have a long delay to uh, support the kind of these fancy devices that do AR or VR. So that, that, is, that is kind of inching its way uh, even in 5G, but you can see more of that in 6G where you can't really tell where the networking happens uh, and, and where the computation happens. So it becomes this big uh, complicated machine, even more complicated than it is today. Those things you can see like hints of them today also, you know, being able to have a digital twin, right? I think you see it in some very fancy applications in industry. Like if you have a plane engine, which is a very expensive thing, right? They measure and sense all kinds of data as the, as the engine is, is running. Uh, but then they have to kind of, when the plane is at the airport, they would, uh, you know, dump all the data and process it and figure out if the, if the engine needs some, some tweaking of any kind of whatever maintenance. Now, if you could imagine having a digital twin of the engine, which is constantly getting information about the, how, what is going on in the engine, what is the temperature, you know, vibration, all kinds of stuff, then you could predict when it needs maintenance. You could predict if, it, you know, if it's running efficiently and so on. Uh, so now, if so this is, of course, the extreme example where it's a plain engine, it costs a lot of money, you can afford it, but you can do it for a lot of things. You can do it for people. I mean, you could, you know, just, you know, I'm wearing one of these Apple watches, which, which really knows a lot about me. <laughs> Probably uh, too much. <laughs> too much. Uh, yeah. I mean, you could, you could imagine, you know, kind of extend this many steps where it really keeps track of your health and your doctor can figure out if something is about to happen to you and warn you and, and so on. So, I mean, you know, the sky's the limit once you have uh, the connectivity established. So many of these things. I mean, you always see stuff happening in the current generation, uh, but it's not really taking off completely. And then, and then it takes off in the next generation when, when, the, when the capability is baked in from the start. Great. I can't wait for my digital twin. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks, Ali, for taking the time yeah. to discuss this important NSF program and its impact on mobile technology and a little bit about 6G. It was very interesting. We hope to check in with you again down the road to see what kind of progress is uh, being made on these programs. For our listeners, you can find more podcasts at podcast.microwavejournal.com. Thanks for listening.